You're listening to a live recording from Westside Church in Bend, Oregon. Thanks for joining us. Uh, well, like I said, today is Palm Sunday, and uh, this, is, this is really a, an exciting time for us as Christians, and it's a celebration. And if we look back in the story of Palm Sunday, the first time when Jesus entered in Jerusalem, it was also an exciting moment. Um, this was a, a time when the people greeted Jesus like a hero as he entered the gates. And, and of course, they threw down their, their clothing and their outer cloaks and created kind of this red carpet that Jesus could ride his, his donkey into Jerusalem. Um, and they, they took palm branches and they, they cried out, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, Hosanna. There was a lot of excitement. And uh, a good reason for that excitement was actually what we're going to talk about today, what we've been talking about the past few weeks. The reason the crowds were so enthusiastic about this man Jesus uh, was not just his general reputation, but it's what he had just done. He had come from Bethany just a few uh, miles down the road from Jerusalem, and he had raised Lazarus, his friend, from death back to life. And so word would have traveled quickly. And likely, this is the reason the crowds are so excited to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem with these palm branches is because he had just pulled off the impossible and he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, throughout this story, both the Lazarus story and Palm Sunday and the entry into Jerusalem, um, Jesus is, is operating on two tracks. On one track is, is what he is doing, performing these miracles, being welcomed by these crowds. And the other track is the, the reality that Jesus knows what the people do not, that at the end of his visit to Jerusalem is going to come a betrayal, is going to become uh, rejection of all the people, even his closest friends. There's going to come a cross, there's going to come a tomb at the end of this story. And so we know this now, the people around Jesus didn't know that at the time, that even as Jesus is, is doing what he came to do and he's, he's, he's bringing hope to, to especially Lazarus and his family, he's... He's performing miracles along the way. He's expressing the love and the compassion of God, but at the same time, he realizes the great sorrow that's ahead of him. And when there is sorrow and pain and trouble on the horizon, it can be tempting to shut down and to give up. And what I love about the model of Jesus in this moment is that even as he is aware of what is going to take place in Jerusalem, he doesn't let that, that stop him from being completely present with those around him and completely committed to expressing the love, the compassion, and the favor of God. He doesn't stop. And so I'm inspired today. Um, I, I shared this last time uh, I spoke a few weeks ago. Uh, we are facing great trouble in our family. My wife uh, has been re-diagnosed, uh, stage four cancer that has moved into her bones. Um, and we are, as you would expect, uh, reeling from that news, but confident not in certain outcomes, but confident in the closeness of Jesus and the strength of this community in these moments. And so for those that have reached out and, and shown your support and, and given us love, and, and we're so grateful, I don't know how we would do it uh, without the community that is around us. And so we are grateful. And I am committed in this moment not to, to just disappear into to my work or into ministry, but to stay committed to the closeness of Jesus, not only for us, uh, but for this community. And even as we face uncertainty on our horizon, we know this, that Jesus is close to the brokenhearted, and that isn't just true for us, it's true for you too. So we welcome Jesus again today, 
even as the crowds did on that day, the first Palm Sunday in Jerusalem, we welcome him into our situation. We welcome him into our trouble. We welcome him into our places of death and disease and sickness. And we say, Jesus, do your thing. Be the resurrection and the life. John eleven seventeen. 17. This is one of my, honestly, one of my favorite stories in all the Gospels. For sure, my favorite miracle uh, because of what it reveals about Jesus. So let's read this together. John 11, uh, verse 17. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Mary and Martha in their loss. And when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Isn't that beautiful when you can, when you can say, look, things didn't turn out well. I don't know why you didn't show up, but even now. I think there are some even now prayers that might stir up in us today. Where we say, even now you could do something. Even now you could step in. And Jesus told her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. But Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and you are not, and I am not. And I have this temptation, and maybe you feel it too, when I see uh, people that are experiencing spiritual death at any level, whether it's, it's just poor decisions on their own part, addictions, um, the weight of, of darkness, that we know Jesus could help with, that we want to step in so many times and fix the problem. Any fixers with us today? Any fixers watching online? You wanna fix the problem. Jesus would remind us today that he and he alone is the resurrection and the life. No compelling argument, no negotiation, as I'm aware, has ever brought anybody back from death into life. It's the power of God revealed through Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Continue reading in verse uh, 32. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, again, just like Martha, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? That's a fair question. And Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told him. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. And Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God if you believe? And so they rolled the stone aside. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and he said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all the people standing here so that they would believe you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound in grave clothes and his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told him, told them, unwrap him and let him go. 
I want to um, mention something that would have been very obvious if you were standing there by the tomb of Lazarus at this moment, after Jesus gives these instructions to unwrap Lazarus and let him go. This would have been obvious if you were standing there, but you might have missed it in the reading today, that once they do what Jesus has asked, yes, Lazarus is alive, yes, Lazarus is free, but also Lazarus is naked. So built into this request or this instruction of Jesus to unwrap the dead man from his clothes, his grave clothes, and let him go is a social, an obvious social imperative that somebody needs to find that boy a robe. Um, Mark Twain famously said this. He said, clothes make the man. Naked people have little to no influence on society. I've tried to live by that advice. The function of a healthy Jesus community that hopefully we exist in, the function of a healthy Jesus community is to help resurrected people dress the part. That what was true for Lazarus is also true for those who are coming out of spiritual death into new life in Jesus. That it can be a liberating, life-giving, freeing experience, but it can also be a very vulnerable experience for those coming into new life. That to step out of what is comfortable, although it is a grave, is not always the easiest thing to do. If we refuse or are unable to understand and notice the vulnerability that people face as they come into new life in Jesus, and we are unable to meet them with a covering mercy, to cover vulnerabilities, to give grace where it's needed, and to give allowance for people to come to life in a way that doesn't expose the problems that still exist in their life, we will find people again and again turning back from life to the confines and the comfort of the grave. Last week, Pastor Steve talked about um, what it means to come out to step out of the tomb, to step out of, of shame, to come out from underneath uh, sin and, and uh, life apart from Jesus, which is death itself. He talked about what it means to, to walk out into new life. The sad tragedy is that so many step into life only to find a community that leaves them vulnerable and exposed, and they turn around. Right back to the old addictions, right back to the old insecurities, right back to the self-hate or the fear or the sin, they turn around because they feel exposed. You know what makes a great salesperson um, when it comes to like, clothing stores, shoe stores? Uh, a lack of judgment, right? So if, if you walked into to, you know, one of the clothing stores downtown today and you said, hey, I, I, I need some new pants. And the salesperson looks at you up and down and says, you want pants for those legs? Yikes, all right, welcome back. What, how does that make you feel? Oh man, I, I, wanted, I wanted to shop here, but I, you know, I'm gonna find another place. I, I, all of a sudden, I, I wasn't insecure about my legs, but now I'm insecure about my legs, why? Because you exposed something in me that is not acceptable. What we, what we are called to do is to be like that salesperson that, that we come in, you know, and, and, and you, need, you need a new outfit or you need clothes and you say, this, this is what I'm looking for. And they say, you know what? You're going to look great. We're going we're gonna to make sure we find you the best pair of jeans 
or leggings or, you know, you know what, let's skip that. Let's just go for some of those big like Jenko style jeans that are just flowy and big. You know, whatever, whatever's going to make you look the best. By the way, I, I've heard that's back in style. But have you heard this? The, the big, huge, like 90s style, flowy, billowy, parachute pants style things are back, back in. I'm fully expecting that you're the one that's going to prove that. Next time you preach, Ben, we want to see him. Raise your hand if you want to see Ben in Jenko's next time. All right. The people have spoken, my friend. But the best, the best at selling, they don't just sell, they make you feel good about what you're putting on. That's that idea of, of, of removing insecurity so that you can embrace a new look. Listen, we as Christians, uh, it's a lot easier to be judgy and point out the, the critique and, and, and point out the problems that someone is, is embracing in their lives when maybe what people need from us as, as followers of Jesus, when they're stepping into new life, they need a, a, a great salesperson who removes insecurity and a good tailor to make sure that they feel so good about the new life they're stepping into in Jesus. That we say, you know what? You have those issues, those problems, and, and some of that stuff is still trying to chase you down, and that, that death is still kind of on you. We're gonna remove those grave clothes together, and we're gonna find you a fit in new life. We're gonna dress you the part for resurrection. And this is, this is what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians about what the function of this community, this church was gonna be. Um, I don't think it's on the screen, but let me read it. In 1 Corinthians 12, he said, the parts of the body seem, uh, that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And the unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which are more, uh, which are more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So who deserves the most honor in this room today? Well, Pastor Steve, of course. Of course we want to honor, you know, whoever is at the top. Of course we want to honor uh, those who have, have served faithfully for 30 years. But according to this, Paul would say, you know who deserves the most honor when you gather? It's the ones coming out of the baptismal tank. The ones who deserve the most covering and the most mercy and the most honor are those who are just coming to faith and just coming to life in Jesus. It's Lazarus just taking off the grave clothes. He needs the robe more than anybody else. And so we step into this role as coverers. Is that a word? Coverers? We wrap people up in security. We wrap people up in mercy. We wrap people up in grace. Not because they have proved their livingness, but because that's what the community does for those who need to be covered, we cover. And this becomes our, our, our job. Um, you know, you might be frustrated, I'm a little frustrated uh, with the, the state of society. I mean, cancel culture is everywhere, right? Um, the thing about cancel culture, you know, we kind of invented that a long time ago. Like, shutting people down, uh, long before Twitter, I mean, Christians, were, we were really good at that for a long time. I'm frustrated not just because of cancel culture, but because they, they took our thing, you know, judginess, hypocrisy. Hey, we had that in the bag for centuries. 
But that was never our job. And I think the answer to a, a state of the world where everyone is throwing accusations and everyone is, is trying to be holier than thou and everyone is trying to claim the moral high ground to look at, down at everybody else and cast stones. Listen, the answer to that issue in our society is not just an anything goes attitude. The answer to that is redemption and forgiveness and mercy. These are not nice sentiments. These are supernatural actions that come from the heart of Jesus through his church. It's the answer. But what it requires of us as, as the church is that we step out of the culture wars long enough to step into our job as givers of mercy, as coverers, as robe finders, as salespeople of really good fitting clothes and tailors when they need it. Come on, we wrap around the issues that society throws at us with great grace and mercy. It's not a cop-out. It's the hardest thing we will ever do. And it's just like Jesus. Imagine if those that uh, Jesus had asked to remove the stone and take off the grave clothes said, you know, well, he got himself into that tomb. Let's see if he can get himself out. Well, you know, those, those grave clothes, it seems like a mess. Let's just see what happens. Well, I think he's alive. He's making some grunting noises under there. Let's give it a few days. Maybe this is a fluke. No, of course not. That would have been crazy, and it would be crazy for us as the people called and following after Jesus to do anything less than rush to the aid of those who are seeking new life. We meet with mercy, every need and every vulnerability. John 10, 10, it says, I have come, Jesus said this, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Just one chapter back, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. You know, Jesus said that he was the resurrection and the life. That means that this first part of this scripture is his job, that he's come that they may have life. That's resurrection. That's, that's bringing dead things back to life. That's, that's allowing people to step out of, of sin and death into life and righteousness. That is Jesus's work. We can't do that for people. That is the supernatural act of Jesus. But you know, I think the second part might be the act of us. This is our part. This is our job. This is our duty. The second part of John 10, 10, Jesus said, I've come that they may have life. And then he said, and have it to the full. How do people have life to the full? They have life in a community. And so we actually see this an invitation from Jesus to partner in the work of resurrection to bring not just life, which he does, but also life to the full. Listen, Lazarus would have had a real hard time having a good, full life wrapped in grave clothes. He would have also had a really hard time having a good life if no one had ever found him a robe. And so Jesus invites us. He says, listen, I will give life. Will you, as the community, will you bring life to the full? Will you wrap your arms and your resources around those who are stepping into new life. I think over the past three weeks, uh, Pastor Bo, Pastor Steve, you know, we've, we've tried to draw some um, good object lessons from this story. But I think the elephant in the room is that John didn't write this as a parable. He didn't recount this story um, so that we would just have some interesting thoughts about the nature of, of God and, and people. And 
at the heart of the story is, is a narrative about something that, that John witnessed and believed actually happened, that there was um, a man who had died of natural causes, of a sickness, who Jesus stepped in because of his great love, and he brought him out of that tomb. It's not a parable, it's not a metaphor, it's not a myth. John's writing this as an eyewitness account. And so the elephant in the room today is that, where's that kind of miracle today? I never, I never wanna treat the stories, especially in the gospels, as just nice thoughts that we can draw some sentiments out of. I want to look at these stories and see a, a historical Jesus who walked in a real place with real people and actually brought the love and the mercy of God to them in real time through the power of God. And so over the past few weeks as I've, I've been meditating and rereading the story over and over again, I find myself uh, relating and empathizing most with Mary and Martha before the resurrection. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be inspiring and focus on the end where there's hope and everything's good, but I find myself again and again relating to these sisters who are brokenhearted because it seems like Jesus hasn't shown up like they expected him. Because if Jesus really loved, wouldn't he have come on time? Wouldn't he have done something? The only person who had the ability to make a difference and he's late. Feels awfully personal. And then Jesus arrives and it seems like it's, it's past hope, it's too late. And then he does something that I think, as I've read this over and over again, I think he does something that is maybe one of the clearest pictures of what he came to do in the first place. John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. If what Jesus does by raising Lazarus is an expression of God's power, what Jesus does in eleven thirty five when he weeps is an expression of God's closeness. He could have done this from a distance. He had healed other people from a distance. He had, he had just said a word and then they find out hours later, well, it worked. But not this time. This time Jesus shows up to comfort Mary and Martha, to sit with them, to weep with them. Jesus the fixer, Jesus the one who knew that everything was gonna be okay in just a few minutes. Why would he weep? He weeps because they were weeping. And I've wrestled with this idea, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did Jesus have to, to feel what we feel? And because you feel pain, he felt pain. Because you weep, he weeps. Because you experience life at its worst, he came to experience life at its worst and he weeps with them. And he weeps with you. You know, uh, the week after we, we found out, um, Alyssa, my wife's news, and we'd shared not everything, but we'd shared enough with our, our daughter. She's eight. She knew, and as you'd imagine, really tough. And then she had to get a tooth pulled. Same week. And so she goes into the dentist, and uh, she actually goes through the, the procedure, and she's, she's fine. She's okay. You know, she didn't freak out, and, and 
Um, that's not always been the case at doctor's offices and things. And we remember she had to get shots several years ago when she was about six and, and uh, she was screaming so loud, running around the, the exam table saying, get your hands off of me to this poor, this poor nurse. <laughs> screaming and we were, oh, it's terrible. Get your hands off me. So, you know, going for a tooth extraction, we're expecting the worst and she was fine. And, and afterwards my wife said, Claire, you seem fine in there. That's, we're impressed. And she said that, she said, well, when we were in the waiting room, it felt like somebody, it felt like somebody gave me a hug. And my wife said, oh, that's just the drugs wearing off, sweetie. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. <laughs> she said that, sweetie, that's Jesus. And you know, I think as questions swirl around and we, we wonder why God doesn't do some things that, that we believe he could do. I guess I'm okay following a Jesus who on the week when you find out your mom is sick shows up because you're getting a tooth pulled and maybe that's too much. And Jesus knows that. And so he shows up and, and we have felt the closeness of Jesus. And we also want him to heal Alyssa. We want him to step in. We want him to part the skies. We want him to, to make things right. And so we're going to keep asking for supernatural healing. We're going to keep asking for a miracle because that's what he does. And in the meantime, we are going to rest confident in his closeness. That when we weep, he weeps with us. As Pastor Bo shared, the great tension that we find in the way of Jesus is that it rarely detours around the valley of the shadow of death. It rarely lets us skip over the hard parts. Instead, he goes with us into the valley. And I have this growing suspicion that the greater point of the entire gospel is not how to get rich or build a personal empire or find the utopia that you're hoping for, but it's this, how to experience the closeness of God when you suffer. When life gets real, when life bears down on you, that we find we are not alone. And this is why Jesus announced, as we've talked about over and over again, why the kingdom of God is for the broken and the hungry and the poor. So we hang crosses in our sanctuary, a symbol of suffering why Paul said that his entire life's work comes down to this one thought that Christ is crucified. And so as we head into Holy Week and, and we look towards Easter, this has the potential to be a, you know, a heavy time. But I want to remind us all, and I, I, I hold on to this hope today that in the sadness of, of Friday, in the crucifixion that we will commemorate on Good Friday this week, in the silence of Saturday when Jesus lied dead in a tomb. As heartbreaking as those moments are when we experience loss in our lives, we have great hope that Sunday is on the way. And so if we weep today, if we, um, if we feel the pain of life today, we rest assured that it gives us access to the Jesus of the resurrection. So I know two things. Maybe this is all I know, but I know two things. That, number one, resurrection wins in the end. 
And number two, in the meantime, Jesus is close. He's close. And so Jesus today, especially for those that are tired of hearing preachers say everything's gonna be all right, and then watching their life play out in a way that seems to contradict that, Jesus, oh, we ask for your closeness. For those that are standing by the tomb of somebody they love, who's existing in in death and sin, Jesus, we trust that you weep with us. For those in a tomb, we know you weep over us. And so Jesus, I would ask for your closeness today. And we will continue to ask that you will show up to perform miracles and heal bodies, to raise up what's been lost, to restore hope. And when you show up and it's on time, we will rejoice. And when it seems like you're late, we'll know that you're on the way and that you're close to the brokenhearted. Jesus, we love you. And we place all of our sorrows and all of our joys firmly on the shoulders of the one who is the resurrection and the life. We find our life in you today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we love you. Uh, We really do. And, you know, we never set out to be like the sad church. No one ever does. (laughs) But we find grace along the way. We find such grace along the way. The sustaining hand of God, uh, we, we trust not just for our own lives or the life of our staff as we face things, but for all of you who are listening and watching today, uh, the grace of God would be on you and with you as we head towards Easter. Love you so much. God bless you.